2: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm your host, Dorian Linsky. Alex Andrei is an actor, writer, and very relevant this week, a former competition specialist who worked in the regulation of pharmaceutical markets. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Keir Starmer got into trouble this week by visiting Jesus House, a church whose pastor uh, opposes gay rights in no uncertain terms, uh, and was then forced to apologise, which offended another group of people. Do you think,
3: was, it, was he wrong to visit, wrong to apologise? How do you unravel this one? Uh, Well, I mean, to say he was wrong to visit would be to subscribe to the the idea that it was a conscious choice. I think it was a fuck up. Um, And if you buy, you know, the Labour's explanation that basically they chose the location because it's a vaccination centre and a religious place. So they thought good spot for a Good Friday message and didn't really realise the rest of the stuff then it's a cock up uh, which means he was absolutely right to apologize but it's really shabby work isn't it i mean it betrays a lack of professionalism i think in the back office which was meant to be one of the v- benefits of opting for starmer as leader mm. that you know it was going to be a more professional outfit um i mean okay they can be justified to be a little relaxed considering prince charles did an interview there and the prime minister did an interview there in the last few weeks and little or none of this criticism cropped up but that's not to excuse it you know because we we do and should expect the labour leader and labour hq to be more switched on about such issues
2: so you don't buy the argument that actually you know that it's okay to to sort of you know I'm to speak to a kind of, you know, a black church, one that is um, obviously helping administer vaccines, addressing, you know, vaccine hesitancy in the, the black community. Um, do, you, do you think it's still a sort of red line? Because I suppose that's the kind of um, calm down Wokies argument.
3: I, I think there are plenty of places that could have done the same job without causing the same offence, yeah. if, that, if that makes sense. So, that, you know, there are other churches who, whose leaders are not as batty as this guy, would have done the job just as efficiently, just needed a little bit more research, and they didn't bother to do their homework, which is cardinal sin. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi.
4: Hi.
2: Loyalist youths are rioted in your uh, old home turf, Northern Ireland, over the last few nights, throwing petrol bombs, fighting with police and so on. What is behind this latest outbreak of violence?
4: I mean, to be frank, that question could probably warrant an entire podcast episode of its own. Is there Um, anything in
2: the history of Northern Ireland that might (laughs) explain this? (laughs) Uh,
4: Let me get to that. So, um, yeah, nine police officers were injured uh, on Monday night uh, in these disturbances. And of course, Stormont has very rightly been recalled from its Easter recess. And regular listeners will have heard me say this phrase before about Northern Ireland that It is a frozen conflict, not a resolved conflict. And anything that heats up tensions thaws that very, very quickly, and all of that conflict bubbles up to the top. And I think what is really driving this, now there is some talk about how, you know, it was that Sinn Féin members attended uh, an unsocially distanced um, funeral that they shouldn't have gone to and all the rest of it. But But really, I think what it's about is the dishonesty over the Northern Ireland Protocol and all of the promises of unfettered access that Johnson... Uh, and others in the government have talked up. And the denial of borders, even as borders are actually physically being erected, and that's all contributed to loyalist anger there. And if you can imagine being a unionist in Northern Ireland who now cannot get their orders from companies that used to ship to the whole of the UK, they're being made to feel like second-class citizens, to feel that they're not really being treated as British because a company that used to ship to them is now saying, sorry, we can't, you know because of the TCA limitations, we just can't anymore. So there is huge resentment being stoked up there. Coupled then with economic woes and recession, and any time you have uh, economic strife in areas like Northern Ireland, in, in conflict zones, you get a, a resumption of, of young men feeling very disenfranchised, disempowered, and then turning to other means to get validation for themselves.
2: On this week's podcast, vaccine certificates, government plans to introduce proof of immunity as a way out of lockdown, but it's run into opposition from other parties, its own backbenches and even the hospitality industry that it's trying to help. Can they be successfully introduced and are they morally justified or an unacceptable infringement on individual liberty? Plus, we meet two of the researchers leading the Brexit Witness Archive, an oral history project which aims to write the first draft of the events that gave us this podcast and some other less fun stuff too. They're talking to some of the most influential people on both sides of the campaign, including Gisela Stewart, Oliver Letwin, and dapper supervillain Richard Tice. What have they found out? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, as Keir Starmer clocks up one year as Labour leader, we look at the opposition to the opposition. What do Starmer's internal critics want, and can he reassert his authority? First this week, five years on, we're all still shouting about passports, except these are the (laughs) kind that get you into pubs, clubs, theatres and arenas, and they don't come in patriotic blue. The government has been looking into what they're calling, rather than a passport, a COVID status certificate scheme since December, spending £450,000 on eight separate pilot schemes. The idea is that certificates would record whether someone has been vaccinated, has had a recent negative test or has natural immunity. But opinions cut across party lines and even leave remain lines. Sage advisor Sir Jeremy Farrow says he believes the certificate crosses that line of individual freedoms and public health. And our own Ian Dunt has called them ID cards on steroids and said they could constitute the greatest change in the relationship between the individual and government in the modern period. Because Ian is very emphatic. Um, Alex, before we, <laughs> before we start on this, we should do the sort of latest bit of vaccine news, which is uh, press conferences on the possible link between the AstraZeneca
3: vaccine and blood clots. What, what have they told us? So just as we were about to record, the drugs regulator, the MHRA, did a press conference at the same time as the EMA in Europe, which I can't think is a coincidence. So what they say is that although there's still no positive proof that the jab causes the clots. The link is getting firmer. That, that's their language. Um, the, the side effects are still extremely rare, and more well work will go on into identifying whether there's particular groups that are at particular risk. They're decision is that the balance of benefits and known risk is still very favourable to the majority of people. So what they've said is that the under 30s, or those with particular health concerns, will be offered an alternative vaccine. EMA largely along the same lines, although since each member state's drug regulator is plowing its own furrows, only sort of advising them what to do. I think this is quite an interesting development someone noted that the oxford bit has been dropped from all uh, BBC, from all bbc reports of the astrazeneca vaccine it's now just the astrazeneca vaccine not the oxford vaccine um, apparently
4: in italy they're referring it to as thrombozeneca <laughs> oh
3: god i mean the with with all new drugs you know you test them on a on a sample as large as you can but once they're, they go out there and they're being injected into millions of people you may observe things that you didn't before but i think this is a lesson about the dangers of vaccine nationalism you know will the tabloids now acknowledge that there were there was some justifiable caution about the AstraZeneca vaccine, that it was not all a plot to do down Britain. Well, the academics that were lambasting the Germans for being too risk adverse, you know, the the problem is, the moment you print a flag on a vial, the risk is not that other governments will be hostile, but that your own government will be too friendly. But I think that.
2: But I think. But I still. I still think they're too averse. What is the
3: risk? The risk is tiny. Yes. Look, for what it's worth, I've had the AstraZeneca vaccine and given the chance I would again. And I I plan to have the second dose of it because the benefits for me far outweigh the risks. That much is true. But even now it's being managed as a PR exercise because when they are presenting the stats, actually the question is not what the risks are in having this vaccine versus getting covid But what the risks are in having this vaccine versus another vaccine, that's an honest assessment of the therapeutics available. It's not to say, you know, it's like me saying aspirin is safer than having a headache instead of comparing it to paracetamol and ibuprofen. You know, there are other Therapeutics out there. There are other vaccines out there. And an honest comparison would be with those vaccines, not with getting COVID.
4: But we are now in this situation where the MHRA are taking a harder line on the AstraZeneca jab than Europe. And, you know, the, the head spin that, that that is now for the Brexiters is quite extraordinary.
3: I know. I mean, because that's the problem. The moment you invest emotionally, in a drug, you become less objective about it. You know, politicians just need to butt out of this. The fact that we have a range of vaccines available is, a, is an international miracle. That's what it is. And it cannot be appropriated and misrepresented and oversold by populist shysters. So,
2: Alex, turn to the certificates the rationale is obvious it's meant to enable reopening and to make everything safer Mm. and to be able to you know that more people can can get into pubs and restaurants without you know having to worry so much about social distancing I mean we're going to be unpacking this question but but instinctively do you do you buy it what is your response to this idea
3: you know I buy it but with so many caveats that maybe I don't buy it my my opinion shifts on this significantly on a daily basis, I have to tell you. I mean, it should only happen after everyone has had the opportunity to get vaccinated, I think, Mm. in terms of fairness, right? But then if everyone has been offered a vaccine, and given the UK's exceptionally high take-up rates, can it be argued that it's necessary? So if 99% (laughs) of the population has been vaccinated, do we actually need such a scheme so it becomes a weird thing right because you can't
2: morally introduce it until everyone's had the chance and as take-up rates continue as they are then once everyone's had the chance you wouldn't need it anyway so it's, it's, it's quite narrow circumstances
4: but, but isn't it it's not just passports and the government have been pretty clear on that it, it's also that you could have had a negative battle flow test within the preceding 24 hours so it you know, it isn't just that only the vaccinated can go to pubs. Um, it's just annoying for those that aren't yet vaccinated that they would probably also need to swab their nose and throat and, and yeah. prove that they. Weren't. Well, I
3: mean, that's, that's one of the things. The that's, <laughs> that, that's one of the things they're saying, and I think that's part of the problem that there hasn't been a clear plan um, put forward, and I don't sense they have a clear plan. What I get instinctively is that the government is just <laughs> flying a series of kites to see how they're received. And I think this is causing more of a problem. Naomi, what I found really interesting about this is that
2: it has, you know, divided people. Um, mm. uh, I'm pretty much fence-sitting on this one. I mean, Ian is obviously very passionately against, but I, I didn't know until I didn't know until I asked Alex what he thought. I don't know what you think. What do you make of it?
4: So I'm a liberal, um, and I was a very active campaigner against ID cards back in the noughties. But I think that there is a very, very big difference between those and the principle of the vaccine COVID passports, COVID checks uh, for venues. And I think it is an unhelpful instinctive reaction to just uh, recoil from this as if they are one and the same thing and, and that there are very legitimate reasons to be against ID cards. And I don't think that those necessarily hold true for this because surely everyone wants freedom from avoidable ill health, potentially from death and certainly from any long term health implications that can be associated with COVID. And more and more of those are coming out every day, not least on the front page of today's I, one in three people uh, within six months of suffering COVID, either develop a mental health or neurological problem. Uh, So so you know and that's separate from long COVID. So in my view and on balance of understanding of the associated authoritarian risks, and you know I would rather any government bar this one was doing it. um, I like the vast majority of voters has to be said I'm broadly supportive of the concept particularly if they're time limited and have the sufficient provisions for those who can't get the vaccine for health reasons. I do object to the government plans on one thing though and that's that they seem to want to bring them in in order to end social distancing and allow mass meetups to happen and that's madness because there are still millions unvaccinated as we've discussed and the vaccinated can still transmit the disease.
2: Can they? Is that because? What's the science? Is is science sort of certain on that? You know how how much transmissible it is in vaccinated people?
4: As I understand it, and all caveats apply as usual. Not a scientist, not a virologist, not a medic of any description but as, as my understanding of it and 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 reading around it is that you can still carry the virus uh, it just doesn't make you as ill or, or it has a lower risk of making you very ill um and that because you can carry it there is a, a risk that you can transmit um mm. i think it is a reduced risk but it, but nonetheless it is still there
2: Starmer said that the idea would go against the, quote, British instinct, Uh, while people on the right are saying, you know, we're not a show your papers society, um, because we're always on the verge of East Germany, um, Mm. in their eyes. And yet, um, even though I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, British people are culturally averse to stuff like this, recent Ipsos Mori poll, which I think you alluded to, found that 62% approved of the concept overall, you know, shooting up to to kind of over 70% for certain uh, circumstances, only 22% were strongly opposed. So, is it just, are we just wrong about what we think the British instinct is?
4: I mean, I'll, I'll let Alex come back on this in a second because I think he's looked at the polling. But we know that while we may be less authoritarian than some countries, and of course we did famously get rid of ID cards, the average Brit probably is quite a bit <clears throat> more happy with an interventionist state than, say, your average Steve Baker type. Um, and and there is this huge support for them, um, as we're seeing in the polling at the moment. So I, I think there probably is a, a misconception uh, and, a, and a, a perception gap between what we as, you know, liberal yeah. commentary at Twitter, think, and think, and what the average Brit <laughs> wants in terms of their safety.
2: And does the do you think this sheds any light on on I suppose this debate about whether Johnson is as was previously assumed instinctively libertarian and only introduces restrictive measures when he absolutely has to, or whether he is a secret authoritarian who quite mm. likes who quite likes rules? Um, and is your opinion of of what Johnson would like to do? Uh, changed at all?
4: I don't think he is a secret authoritarian, no. Um, I think he is finally waking up to the fact that history is going to credit the UK with one of the worst handlings of coronavirus in the world, one of the worst, the most avoidable death rates, given how much early warning we had and ignored. And I also think that he probably really, really wants to go to the pub and on holiday and thinks that the best way of making it safe for for people to do that is via this kind of
3: route.
2: Good, pub politics. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, in that in that Ipsos Mori poll, um, it showed that those in favour of the COVID certificates tended to be older, which makes sense because they've had the vaccine, uh, and whiter. Whereas young people and people from ethnic minorities were more sceptical. Um, so, is there a danger that if that if this did come in, there would be this demographic divide and a kind of—I mean, I suppose some—I hate to misuse the word apartheid. Some people talked about like a social apartheid, but you know, something which which once again you know it says to young people that kind of uh, comfortable old white boomers <laughs> yeah uh, are getting advantages
3: yeah and i think what we have to acknowledge is that actually you know a lot of comfortable young boomers wouldn't mind that you know they they wouldn't mind going to pubs and restaurants where young people didn't have access to them but i think it's really dangerous because it it makes my worry about it is that it makes vaccination become a thing that's almost compulsory, almost under duress, that there are these segments of social life that you can't access and, and unless you have your vaccine. And I think considering, you know, what we are here today about vaccine safety, I am uncomfortable with compelling people to have it. And we, we, and also, we, you know, of course,
2: the talk is about herd immunity and about a certain percentage, and then that gives you herd immunity. You don't have to have a hundred percent vaccination. But this, this idea sort of seems to slightly give up on that, on that
3: concept. It, and again, it depends on whether you think those groups cross socialise, because actually, if you have, you know, big nightclubs that largely cater to people who are under twenty-five, then. In that particular herd, there isn't enough immunity. Do you see what I mean? Uh, yeah, exactly. They're not all kind of.
2: It's not like uh, it's not like a cross section of British society in every uh, <laughs> every
3: nightclub. So I think you're going to get thirty percent pensioners going to raves uh, <laughs> that will counterbalance, you know, because <laughs> they've all been vaccinated. So it's a difficult. It's a difficult judgment. You'd get better toilet facilities if that was the case. Um, <laughs>
2: So there are these various concerns, and I think perhaps they, they sort of flood in because there is, a, there is a kind of an absence of detail. There's not a bill to discuss mm. here. There's not like a kind of uh, a, a detailed plan to examine. So some people worry that private medical data um, could be misused or accessed by big tech firms and, you know, who exactly is going to be administering this if this is a, a digital yeah, then I'm sure it's going to be a digital option. Other people worry that they could be the kind of basis for a more permanent ID card. I mean, there's a lot of kind of sort of slippery slope, who knows what's next
3: kind of arguments. Do any of them worry you? Look, I come from a country that has ID cards, so I don't entirely understand the fuss. I, I, it's peculiarly British in my view. The data point, however, is a huge danger, and one that is not talked about enough, because I can't see the system working without some electronic component, which means that you can be checked in, monitored, and checked out of various places. Data that both government and big tech would love to get their hands on. And, you know, I I don't even know that we're talking about big tech firms accessing it somehow clandestinely or misusing it. I think this bunch of shysters in government at the moment, they they'll straight up sell it. Or
4: just lose it. I mean today, um and we're recording on, on Wednesday, it was reported that Facebook has had a a leak of half a billion users data. It's gone largely unreported mm. today, but but Politico Europe covered it. So, you know, it it can be Cock up as well as conspiracy yeah. that causes people's so, individual information to be out so there. Pr-
3: you know, these are real issues and they need to be managed really, really carefully. So, Naomi, I mean, I suppose my instinct at the moment is,
2: is, 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 is I'm not sure that this is going to happen, uh, even come to Parliament, let alone pass it. But one, one sort of final question I wanted to pose to you is do you think it will encourage people to take up the vaccine? In order to sort of access all the parts of civic life that their uh, their boomer nemesis can, or could it actually inspire a backlash among the already hesitant? That, that, that it's it's not a nudge that it's so sort of sort of strong arming people into vaccines, and those that are wary are just going to you know recoil, and have the opposite effect.
4: I mean, I th- you know, I've, I've yet to meet a young person or a, a previously young person who railed against having to get a yellow fever or a dengue fever shot to and, and have proof of that immunisation before entering a country on, you know, their travels around the world. So I don't think that, that people are going to sort of dig in on this um, much beyond, you know, some people in Parliament. I think the hesitant are much more likely to become vaccine hesitant because of concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine than they are to be inspired about the safety of going to the pub and then, you know, changing their minds and coming forward for it. And I suppose yeah. on that supply issue. If we do see people beginning to say no to the AstraZeneca vaccine because of everything that's happened this week, that may soothe some of the supply issues that there are, but have this this much worse negative impact on the fact that fewer people are getting immunised.
2: Well, I fully expect that when Ian returns, he will scold us all for sleepwalking into a police state (laughs) just so we can go to the pub. Now some prime Brexit content for our hardcore listeners. We've often wondered how history will view the Brexit years. Now researchers at the think tank UK in a Changing Europe are writing history's first draft with the Brexit Witness Archive, a project to collect academic research on Britain's relationship with the EU. Joining us from UK in a Changing Europe, a former civil servant, now senior research fellow Jill Rutter, and research associate Doctor Alan Wager. Hi, Jill and Alan.
5: Hiya. Hello.
2: So what's the what's the thinking behind this? When did it originate?
5: I think it originated uh, sitting in Anand Menon's office thinking about what might we do. And it owes a very direct lineage, if not to say, say uh, flagrant plagiarism, from the Institute for Government's Ministers Reflect project. Uh, as you know, I was Programme Director for Brexit at the Institute for Government. And the Institute for Government did this thing where they asked lots of former ministers to give their reflections on their time in office, what they'd learned, et cetera, et cetera. And that's proved uh, really very, very interesting, uh, possibly an easier sell because I didn't use my title for it, which was going to be Ministerial Graveyard <laughs> or Departure Lounge. But anyway, that, so, that uh, well. so, we, uh, so we took that idea and thought, wouldn't it be useful if somewhere we just gave the people who'd been you know, participants in some way in the whole process of Brexit, a chance just to put their near contemporaneous views of what happened on the record, not in a sort of way where we grill them to bits, this is no attempt to be sort of, you know, bargain basement Jeremy Paxman's Mm -hmm. or whatever, but to give people to tell the stories of Brexit in their own words and make those available. And really this is viewed, I mean, we are after all an academic think tank, this is really viewed as a potential future research resource for yeah. yeah. students, teachers and all those people who will be doing those questions about why did the UK Brexit in this form da, 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 discuss you know, for years and years to come in a million politics courses, um, the sort of things that Alan teaches sometimes.
0: <laughs> but when, we, when we agreed to start doing this, it was sort of six months after Boris Johnson sort of won that election where he sort of said he promised to sort of get Brexit done. And by that, sort of by, to make Brexit history, if you like, that was his idea. By that, I think he meant to just not talk about Brexit and to pretend it, was, it, just, it, it wasn't still a political problem. So actually getting people on the record to actually give the sort of genuine, real picture of what happened is actually really important. I think that there's this great Eric Eric Copeland quote where he says that the danger in, in sort of prematurely sketching the outlines of history is that it means that contemporary historians often sort of paint this big, glorious background to a, to a present that really doesn't have very much to say for itself. Right. And Boris Johnson's Brexit deal might not really have had very much to say for itself. But by getting a, a really genuine picture of what how it came about and the, the various machinations and the decisions, the strategies that led to where we are now for what it is, whatever it is, for what, for what it's worth. I think that was really what the purpose of it was. So we could actually get things on the record, you know, starting six months after. And obviously six months after January the 1st, 2020, is quite it's, you know, ultra contemporary history, but obviously it really did feel like like history then. You know, so much going yeah. on in that six month period that I mean, and the people we spoke to, you know, their their, well, their lives had changed so much they really did feel like history.
2: Well, a lot of these people had been in sort of battle mode uh, for a few years. Um and of course if you tried to interview them while the whole you know fight over brexit was still going on um they would have been rather defensive unwilling to admit mistakes and so on did you find uh, this remove that some of them were still sort of stuck in that mode or were they were they kind of you know able to sort of look back on it more honestly and and perhaps admit uh certain things they wouldn't have admitted at the time
5: I think um, for us, the people that we've interviewed are mainly people who had been part of this but were now a bit distanced. I mean, it's one of the things you'll notice if you go on the witness archive that, for example, you know, a lot of the most prominent Brexiteers, ERG members, or whatever, are not in the archive. One of the reasons for that is the reason they're not in the archive is they're in the cabinet. And so we've <laughs> got a slight over representation, you might say, of the people. Whose political careers are for now at least in a degree of limbo. So they do have a chance to sort of look back over this period, which, you know, if you think of some of the people we've interviewed, some of the sort of people who, you know, a couple of years ago were leading Conservative cabinet ministers who not only found themselves expelled from their party, but fighting the election as independents and things like that. I mean, those people are looking back and really asking themselves, you know, almost pinching themselves saying, Well, what on earth happened there? What happened to me? What happened to my career? What happened to our party? And how on earth did it go? So, I think it's quite a lot of that sort of reflective mode in it, which is one of the things that's quite interesting. I mean, some of the other people obviously are still still players. You know, we've got people who are still politicians there. You know, Caroline Lucas, Chris Grayling, still. still lurking around not in government but on the back benches and things like that but we sort of aimed off asking too many people who are still very prominent players um, much as we'd love them to have if they want to volunteer because they're all avidly listening then please do get in touch with us at UK and Changing Europe.
2: Brexit supporting cabinet members are of course (laughs) avid listeners to this podcast and we've we noticed that when we had politicians on uh during 2019, in particular, you know that they were quite candid about how sort of unpleasant, um, and acrimonious, and exhausting it was. And there's some of these kind of emotions expressed in in the interviews. Did you find that that was across the board that would, know, whether you were a remainer or a leaver, that that it was a, a, you know, it really got pretty dirty and arduous.
0: You got the sense that that actually for a lot of the remain politicians, I mean, Oliver Letwin, for example, is really clear that the reason he left Parliament was because when he initiated these cross-party developments in the House of Commons, he was sort of really sort of treated badly by a lot of Conservative MPs. And Dominic Grieve, you know, sort of says that he's fallen out with a whole load of people but no one he sort of really cares about. But I mean, it, these these people have left the House of Commons because of the the culture that existed during that during that Parliament. But on the other hand, a lot of them speak quite candidly about how it meant they had a huge amount of personal influence and. It made them think differently about how politics was conducted, and you know, obviously, one of the broad lessons from from Brexit is that the nature of our party system is part of the reason why we got to where where we are, and ultimately, the failure of that is is part of the reason why we got to where we were. So, I think I think there was a really some sense of optimism at some points during the process, as well as as well as a real sense that things were really fractious.
5: I think one of the things that came out for me was the extent to which. Uh which there was really quite a lot of cross-party working and actually quite a lot of people who really had been what we might call quite long-serving parliamentarians suddenly discovered actually that they really quite liked working across the floor with uh, people they found they had perhaps more in common with uh, to turn a phrase than than they expected and how they really in some ways quite enjoyed some of those things. I remember Hilary Benn jumping all over me when I used the phrase Oh, when Parliament took control of the order paper. Said, no, Jill, no, Jill, no, we just we just you know, brought it forward and used the process about private members bill, but not on a Friday. And, they, you know, this is all wrong, this language. And uh, it was really quite interesting to see that. I think my favourite, my favourite cross party story of all, actually, is uh, is in the Jess Phillips interview. And there's this wonderful vision where Jess Phillips keeps on thinking, why is Theresa May not reaching out to someone like me to help her get her deal sort of over the line? She ought to be talking to me. Theresa May finally, finally, finally calls Jess Phillips while she's having her nails done in a nail bar. That's, sort of course, totally unrealistic now in sort of lockdown Britain, but uh, from next week or better. But uh, but I just think that's such a great vision of Theresa mm. May calling up when there's Jess Phillips saying, I've been waiting for you to call <laughs> and I've got my sort of you know, hands out in front of me trying to dry off my new nail varnish. So anyway.
2: Jess Phillips actually told you that you know the Remain campaign fundamentally did not get the idea of the deliciousness of a protest. And I suppose talking about the kind of the energy behind the Leave vote, did you get a sort of strong impression of that the, there was quite a learning curve for the people on on the remain side,
5: I mean I think that with very few exceptions uh, one or two to come with very few exceptions, uh, the remain campaign probably is a bit of a unifying theme in <laughs> the uh, in the things in particular the general uselessness of the remain campaign, whether it 's from David Cameron and George Osborne taking the wrong lessons from the Scottish referendum whether it's from the sort of, you know, very late start, the view that they had to really wait until after they'd got the Cameron renegotiation that sort of sunk on contact with reality and it's (laughs) quite interesting stuff as well about that process of renegotiation and building to a big sort of crescendo at the council to sign it off that turned into a sort of damp squib and then, you know, the Europeans saying, but we've given you so much, we've given you so much, surely this has brought the... Uh, brought the referendum home it's now a slam dunk isn't it and we're going uh no nobody's going to pay any attention to what we've just spent months agonizing with you guys over I thought that was all quite quite interesting um and it's almost like when those sort of light bulb moments which I think the last light bulb to turn on possibly is Oliver Letwin as when you know the people giving us different accounts of when they realized that Remain was in difficulty and not going to win. And the one I really like is Oliver Letwin, who is a sort of last holdout, still thinking that <laughs> Remain going to win. Um, but anyway, so it's quite interesting to <laughs> see people dawning on that the gradual sort of you know moments that they wake up, they go to an event or something like that, and suddenly realise uh, realise that actually quite a lot of people they thought would vote Remain are actually going to vote Leave, and this could go very horribly wrong.
2: you go back in the timeline i suppose and what people are talking about there are things like the the av referendum david cameron's bloomberg speech so a few years before the referendum and we had uh, philip stevens on, from the ft on talking about his book britain alone where of course you know he, he sort of takes it back to suez you know if you want to talk about britain's relationship with the eu you can go about a very long way did you have a sense that, like, there was a in terms of the remit of the interviews, that there there was a sort of, a, you know, a cut off. That there was a point where you were going to start the timeline.
0: Yeah, so we started most of our of our interviews sort of in 2010 or or later. I mean, I remember we spoke to spoke to Chris Grayling, and he and we first question we asked him was about his time as sort of shadow home secretary when they made the tens of thousands uh, announcement, and he sort of said, "Why are you asking this? It's got nothing to do with with Brexit." Of course, obviously that. Hmm. Vision did have sort of everything to do with everything to do with Brexit. But, but if you take the view that the Bloomberg decision was pretty much a strategic mistake, a mistake of sort of political agency, then the obvious point to start is the rationale behind the making of that decision. And most of the people we speak, spoke to, almost indeed all of them, thought it was a mixture of sort of schutzpah, a, a sort of a tactical mistake over strategy and so on. So I think you have to start from the point that actually something fundamentally went wrong when David Cameron was prime minister, when he made that decision, that from there flowed the Brexit to some extent. So you can go back as far as you want in terms of structural reasons, but you have to put actual weight on that on, on the on the failure of, uh, of David Cameron when he made that Bloomberg speech. I think.
3: Have you done Gordon Brown? Because so many of our tribe remainers, I guess, trace back to that encounter between Gordon Brown and. Gillian Duffy, the the sort of moment when government was on the back foot about immigration, where they failed to sort of defend the choices they had made in the 90s about immigration, and that really they'd been on the run since then?
5: Uh, I think that we haven't actually asked Gordon Brown, uh, and actually no one's really mentioned the Gillian Duffy moment, but I think what people have gone back to, if you read Gisela Stewart's interview, She thinks that actually the Blair decision in 2004 to open up immigration to the A8, you know, economically beneficial to the UK. Yeah, it comes out in Jonathan Fall's interview. That was how the EU regarded it. Couldn't understand why the UK (laughs) was suddenly crying foul and saying we need to do something about this. They were looking saying, but actually you guys done quite well out of it, haven't you? But I think, you know, some people do trace it back to that. It's quite interesting. If you read Caroline Fint's interview, She talks about the way in which government wasn't really focusing very much in that sort of brown time. She was Minister for Europe on Europe as an issue and how impervious the Labour Party was during the period out of office, the 2010 to 2015 uh, thing. And this is really different from the Conservatives at thinking about why was UKIP increasingly attractive to some of their voters? And you get this impression from Caroline Flint that she's sort of a bit of a lone voice they're saying, look, we need to pay a bit of attention to these concerns that you know, people mm. in my constituency are expressing uh, in terms of you know, being quite attracted to the message they're getting from Nigel Farage. So I think there's a number of factors there that are that are really interesting. I mean, we could have gone back and maybe if we get some of the longtime Eurosceptics, we get Bill Catch or someone, we'll have to go back to Maastricht. And all of that, I think you can sort of, you know, trace Mm. these antecedents way, way back to whenever, Yeah, I'm slightly surprised, Philip Stevens only goes back to Suez, actually. (laughs) And some (laughs) people try a bit
2: harder.
5: (laughs) Holy Um, Holy Roman Empire or something like that.
2: (laughs) Some of the interviewees are obviously pretty demob happy. Others still seem like a little cautious. Were you feeling sometimes that there were people who might perhaps want, you know, a return to frontline politics? who were still self-censoring and that you'd almost want to sort of come back to them at some future date to get the real story.
5: Um, there were one or two people who actually gave interviews and then looking around, I mean, these people, uh, people sort of ex-advisors or campaigners who wondered whether this might have implications for their current jobs and have uh, said that actually they prefer... Uh, their interview to go unpublished into an archive for the benefit of future generations rather than for now. One or two people have said actually they don't think it would be in their immediate interest to give us interviews which were no-holds-barred critiques of current colleagues, naming no names. So we've had one or two people who have said no on that account. Mm. Um, uh, and one or two, I think, you might think are actually sort of you know trying not to not to alienate though I think by and large actually I've been pretty impressed by how frank people are prepared to be and you know and how interestingly reflective though you know as as you rightly know we are dependent on people who are prepared to say yes so there is a bit of selection bias in there and over time we hope to to add to this uh, so that we make sure we get all the sort of different voices involved. And one of the things we have found is that one or two of the people who didn't come back to us or weren't so keen before we started publishing uh, have now looked at, uh, at the interviews and decided mm. that actually that they quite like to be uh, included in our archive. So That's quite gratifying. One of
0: the things is that conservative, conservative, uh, you know, Remainers, I mean, we we asked people at the end of these interviews, what do you think's fundamentally changed as a result of this process? And they're all quite clear that they think that the Conservative Party has fundamentally changed to the point where none of these sort of conservative Remainers that we kicked out of the Conservative Party would ever envisage going back to the party. And they don't think it's a temporary glitch in our party system. They think that something permanent and fundamental has changed in the, in the nature of the Conservative Party. So I mean, basically, a lot of them don't think that they have a future in their old party anymore. So that I think that does give them free hand to, you know, speak openly about about this as as they did.
4: You focused on interviewing parliamentarians, former parliamentarians, but obviously there were a lot of other actors in and around um, both the Leave and Remain campaign camps. Was it an active decision not to interview any of them? That you know, the people that had headed up uh, Britain Stronger in Europe, Leave.eu, Vote Leave, etc.
0: Yeah, no, we've got some seri- some some senior, senior members of, of the People's Vote campaign and so on. And we'd love to probably interview you t- too, Naomi, no doubt, about the... That was the root of the <laughs> question. <laughs> no, we, would, we, would, we definitely would. And uh, I mean, we're, yeah, we've, said, we've interviewed a lot of people that were in um, that were this, the uh, People's Vote campaign and Britain Stronger in, in, in Europe. I mean, one of the things that really does come across when thinking about the People's Vote campaign and Jill was talking about the Remain campaign earlier. Is how different the People's Vote campaign is seen by a lot of people that were involved in it, and a lot of people that were, that were sort of persuaded by it. And a lot of the and in some of the interviews we've got coming out soon, people talk about how, for example, the big march. You know, people made jokes about it and say it was sort of Waitrose Brigade, but also actually did fundamentally change a whole load of MPs' minds, and it was actually strategically really important. And you know, a lot of people, for example, Caroline Lucas. Uh, I, I, have, I have quite a lot of praise for the People's Vote campaign. And yeah. I think
4: well, Caroline came up with the with the name People's Vote.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. She, she coined the phrase. Yeah. I'm not sure she claimed it in the interview. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I think I think that there is um, one of the easy things, you know, the classic, you know, cliche history is written by by the winners. I think one of the one of the things that does come across really clearly in these interviews, though, is that is a lot of the strategies and campaign tactics of the People's Vote campaign move the debate. Quite fundamentally, particularly from the spring of two thousand eighteen to the autumn of two thousand eighteen, it's in quite a fundamental way, Mm. and that, that does come across quite clearly.
5: But it also, but also, I mean, the People's Vote campaign is one of the things that quite a lot of people have a sort of viscerally quite negative reaction to. I think, you know, even people that you might have expected to have some sympathy, and not least because, you know, as the possibility of reversing Brexit rose uh the sort of you know that actually caused a fissure among the sort of ex-remainers those who wanted to see thought brexit needed to be done in some form but thought that the answer was looking for some sort of softish brexit versus those who peeled off from that which was sort of you know the majority reaction the immediate aftermath of the referendum and into seeing that there was a possibility of uh, remaining after all. And I think that, you know, had does cause sort of heightened emotions on both sides, comes out in quite a few of the interviews.
2: Well, Jill, finally, there's, there's, um, you've got some great people so far, but presumably, you know, there's there's a lot of, of people, that, yeah, there's nobody really not going to want to hear from who, who was involved. And some of those, whether they're cabinet members or shadow cabinet, Keir Starmer, for example, they're not going to want to do this for a while. Is it an open-ended project to so sort of indefinitely, you know, five years from now people will, you know, will still be being interviewed for this? Or is, is there any sort of deadline or is it just this organic thing that, that you would just wait? Like a hunter, a hunter waiting in the undergrowth. Hunter, for,
5: the hunter waiting for people to sort of, you know, the prey to be uh for their careers to collapse. the collapse <laughs> and stuff like that. You get dropped and we pounce instantly. Um <laughs> It's a bit like the Minister's Reflect archive, where they look Mm. for a reshuffle and see who's lost their job. And they, uh, after a brief grieving interval, get a letter saying would they like to take part in the archive. And you do actually get some people there whose uh, careers revive and who, uh, where their new private offices, immediately check out what they said, particularly about whether they sat their (laughs) private offices straight away. Uh, Liam Fox, I'm thinking of you. So there are people we would like to get. There are some people that we may go back to now that we've got the sort of possibility of archiving this long term at the University of Essex. So some of the people who said they didn't think that these were for publication, you know, within the time frame of funding for UK and a Changing Europe. So at the moment, the deadline we're confronting, uh, but this is a matter of the Economic and Social Research Council, is that at the moment, UK and Changing Europe is only funded through to April of next year. So uh, our ability to go on doing this depends on whether that funding is extended or, if not, may have to be transferred elsewhere. Um, There's a parallel exercise. Our colleague Katie Hayward at Queen's University Belfast is about to launch an archive there looking at Ireland and Northern Ireland. You'll note that we actually haven't done interviews with the big players over there, and clearly that's hugely important to capture as well uh, because Northern Ireland... Yeah, emerged. I mean, one of the big things that comes out of our interviews is the extent to which people didn't anticipate this massive issue of Ireland that we talk about every day. So she's going to do that in parallel. So I think it would be great if this could sort of develop over time and become a big repository of all the key players' views, not just those that happen to be available and willing to play in the window that we've had so far so I hope it will go on and I hope it will be really really useful but actually even if we do no more interviews actually we've got some more to come uh we're in Perda at the moment we've got some more to come uh, that we'll start releasing as soon as we've got local elections and those devolved elections out of the way and we're adding to the file all the time you know hope that even so it's a really valuable contribution to people who want to understand this extremely insane period in British politics.
2: And they're well worth reading. So where can listeners find these interviews, archives?
5: So you go onto the UK and the Changing Europe website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. hoping Alan's going to yell if I've got that wrong. And then you'll see a button that says Brexit Witness Archive. Click on the Brexit Witness Archive and you will then find all the interviews, nice big pictures um, with people all sort of listed in, alphabetical order which sort of makes you realize that people in the Brexit party seem to come towards the end of the alphabet but anyway so we've got quite wide (laughs) quite wide coverage there and we'll be adding to them adding to them all and what we tend to do is we uh, we tweet out when we release them and if uh, Alan and I have time we do a tweet thread with some of the selected highlights but the selected highlights never what you should read you should always read the full interviews because there's too much good stuff in there for a tweet thread to do justice to them.
2: We'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks so much, Jill, Rutter and Alan Wager.
5: Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for having me.
2: We've almost reached the end of the podcast, which means it's time to rummage in the cyber tray for But Your Emails. This week, Nick Simpson says, it's 2030, a Labour-led coalition has won the next election and brought in an STV version of PR. This is just total Remain fan fiction, isn't it? (laughs) What do our political parties look like? Which parties have split and into what? And what new parties have sprung up?
4: I love this question. So thank mm, you, Nick. Um, and for <laughs> the listeners who don't understand all the acronyms, STV is the Single Transferable Vote uh, System, um, which is a, a form of proportionate voting system. So, Nick, I don't think that the parties would immediately split. Um, I think there will be some kind of institutional inertia at play. And also, there are probably still going to be advantages of being in a big party. And that, be- it's because while STV is a subset of PR, STV also can have different forms, and so it's going to depend on what form that takes. So if it's say a five-member constituency uh, kind of setup, there's probably no great gain from being in a party that polls around the five percent mark. Um, so if they were all to split up and you know started polling around that level, it it mightn't help them. And also, I think it's really going to depend what. Mood, Labour is in at the time, and who, if anyone, will be up for leading a split, because twenty thirty is actually only you know uh, nine years away. But I think about the question, you know, in the way that I think you probably want me to answer it, which is, you know, what do the Tories split into? What do the Labour Lib Dems split into? I think if we'd had PR over the last 10 years, there may well have been a a split during the Corbyn years and Labour could have fragmented into a far left party and a more social democratic wing. And we almost certainly would have seen a pro-European split from the Conservatives, um, as as Jill alluded to quite strongly earlier. Uh, Again, I would have hoped that the Liberal Democrats might then peel off and some of their, you know, right wing Europhiles could join that Conservative pro-European uh, element and there would be the emergence of a, of a much more uh, social liberal party as well.
2: Well, well obviously, I'm predicting the uh, the return of Change UK. <laughs> I
1: knew yeah. you would. Re- re- no, not. It's, it's, not it's, only, it's not
2: dead, it's only sleeping. I um, no, no, oh,
3: <laughs> absolutely knew you
2: would. But I mean, I do think, and 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 Patrick and listeners will be able to hear more about this uh, in the extra bit where we talk about labour. But there really probably should be a socialist party, and that you know, properly hard left, you know, socialist party yeah, probably should not be the Labour Party. And you know that that it, it's a it's a party that sort of wants to split, but can't because of the mm. voting system. So in this scenario that Nick suggests. you know, that that would seem to be its chance. Alex, what do you think on left, right
3: or centre? I think British politics in its recent history is littered with the corpses of those who thought they'd peel off and start their own party. Um, And I think that fear is very deeply ingrained in people. So, if the electoral system changed to a more proportional one, I think the it the change would be generational. So, I don't think it would happen straight away. Certainly not by twenty thirty. Although, what it might allow is a sort of syriza or a, an anmarch, you know, something that just comes at a particular point in time and captures the public's imagination and suddenly propels um, mm. that party into government. I think it, it best allows for, for the possibility. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it allows for that possibility, at least, doesn't it? As you know, Dorian, I have long thought that uh, British politics is unbalanced because of a, a lack of a proper left uh, uh, mm. partner. Party, because I think its function would be not only to provide a home for those who want to push for such policies, but I think it would be also to keep Labour more honest. Centre parties, in many, many ways, depend on being threatened from both sides in order to stay properly centred. When there's no threat from one side, What they tend to do is what, uh, you know, what Jill described, which was they are completely oblivious of the fact that their voters might suddenly go unmasked to someone else. And that becomes quite a dangerous complacency. So I think it would make for a healthier body politics. And I don't mind coalitions at all. Um, I think they're very, very healthy. And that's the show. Thank you to Naomi.
4: Thanks very much.
3: Alex. My
2: pleasure. And to our guests, Dr. Alan Wager and Jill Rutter. You can read the Brexit Witness archive at ukneu.ac.uk. If you're a Patreon backer, stay tuned after the music for this week's extra bit, where it's Year of care time. Now, it's our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional thanks to our latest backers.
3: Hello, and thanks from me to Carl Finnan, Angela, Rob Harris, Harris, Nicholas Bull, Mavis McMinty.
4: And greetings and thanks from me to Mark Dolby, Susan Hamilton, Jamie Whiteman, Ingrid Sharp and Lala Sunrad.
2: And thanks from me to Tim Mulford, Oscar Smith, Mike McQueen, B Pesky and Lindsay. Oh God, what now?
0: It was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelna Sofreniewicz. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.
2: Now, welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Keir Starmer marks the end of a tumultuous first year in charge of the Labour Party and it's about to get tougher with local elections approaching and the by-election in Hartlepool looking bad for the party. Perhaps his biggest headache has been the left both inside the party and proudly outside of it. Naomi we've talked a lot about Starmer's strengths and weaknesses and also how the uniqueness of the pandemic makes it hard to draw any firm Mm. conclusions. This is not your typical first year He started strong. Do you think the decline in his personal approval rating and Labour's position can be put down mostly to the government's vaccine bounce? Or is there more to it, something perhaps more troubling for Labour?
4: Look, it is very, very hard to be leader of the opposition in the current situation. (laughs) And there is an element of lose-lose. So I'm I'm not blind to that at all. And I certainly don't think, uh, you know, it's anything other than an incredibly difficult challenge. But I don't think that it is totally down to the government's vaccine bounce. That is a huge part of it. But there is still the fact that I think Labour are pursuing a flawed conventional strategy of trying to be a class based party when actually people are defining more as either social conservative or social liberal. And then finding a balance between those socially conservative and culturally liberal voters is incredibly difficult for Labour to do. And and I don't think the right strategy for them. Um, and, And without even factoring in boundary changes for a majority of one. Labour is going to need roughly a 10% direct swing from Conservative to Labour. And given how fractured the Labour Party is, that the PLP is even, um, a majority of just one could make his government pretty unstable. So he has got a job and a half on his hands. I don't think it's down entirely to him. I think a lot of the problem rests with the PLP, but more broadly with, with, with the flawed strategy I think they're trying to pursue at the moment.
2: Now, I kind of hate thinking about Labour in terms of uh, just that there's a dial and it it moves to the left and to the right and everything can be explained by that uh, and by the presence of the dreaded centrists. Um, They've only
4: won three elections since 1979. (laughs) That proves that the dial is a shit dial. It hardly (laughs) ever comes back round to us.
2: (laughs) That was a little taster of the executive luxury penthouse edition of Oh God, What Now? If you sign up to Backus on Patreon, you can get the podcast early, longer, without ads, plus our splendid merchandise too, and free access to our live Zooms. Take care, and we'll see you next time.